This morning reading taken from Matthew chapter 11, 1 to 6, on page 976. Jesus and John the Baptist. After Jesus has finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on to, from there to teach and preach in the town of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deed of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, once again I ask you to open our ears and our hearts so that we may hear and receive whatever you want to say to us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning's um, reading from Matthew 11 begins with John the Baptist uh, sending his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one, or should we expect someone else? It's a question people have been asking for ever since Jesus walked on the earth for over 2,000 years. It's a question that I asked myself as a young man. And in a moment, I'll tell you how I found an answer to that question. But first, I must tell you that I was astonished, gobsmacked, by the fact that John the Baptist sent his disciples to ask that question. I mean, this is the John who knew from the beginning, throughout his life, that he'd been chosen by God to be the herald, the forerunner, of the coming Messiah. This is the John who we read about in John's Gospel, that when he saw Jesus coming in the distance, he, he approaching, he said, um, this is the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, you, you know, he, he, and then he went on and said, you know, um, I testify that this is the chosen one. He, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is the same John who, when he finally baptized Jesus, saw the heavens open up and the Holy Spirit come down on Jesus in the form of a dove, and he heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. I mean, how could this man now be sending his disciples to say to Jesus, excuse me, are you the one or am I waiting for somebody else? Well, various people, <clears throat> various scholars over the years have tried to, to work out what that question means, and they've come out with various answers. But I'm with those who say that John was having a crisis of faith, which uh, was caused by failure and disillusion. Failure, well, Jesus had only just appeared on the scene when Jesus was slung into prison. And he who thought that he should be out and about, you know, um, preparing the way of the Lord, found himself in a prison cell from which he would not come out alive. It's no surprise then that he was wondering whether he had heard God correctly or whether he had heard God at all. Furthermore, 
he, he predicted a different, he, he was waiting for a different sort of Messiah altogether. In, in, the, in the desert, John had been inspired to preach fire and brimstone sermons. Um, he, he preached the imminent uh, judgment. In fact, uh, in, in Luke's gospel, we hear him saying, uh, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who will baptize, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and, he, on, uh, and his threshing floor he will gather up from his threshing floor in his barn, but he will, he will gather up the wheat, and he will burn the, the chaff in unquenchable fire. You see, I know John knew that Jesus was coming, but he was not expecting Jesus to come quite that way. And when Jesus came, John was expecting a hard power Messiah. And here comes Jesus as a soft power Messiah. Not much chaffing and winnowing and fire burning of chaff going on here. So John was in despair. There is nothing in this world that, that like personal, as much as personal failure, that can make you doubt God. And John had to learn, like we all have to, that God's ways are not always the way that we want his ways to be. And when John's disciples get, finally get to Jesus, they don't even get a straight answer. Jesus says to them, go and report what you hear, the, and we thought we just read it to us, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the, the, what it, what it say, the, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to them. Well, John knew that. He'd heard all that before. That, been, that news had been brought to him in his prison cell. And the Gospels don't tell us whether John was satisfied and comforted by Jesus' answer. However, if John knew his Old Testament prophecies, he would have known that each of those miracles enumerated by Jesus was already predicted by, one by one, these, these, these were also enumerated as signs, messianic signs, by um, the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier. <clears throat> but there is something else that uh, Jesus is saying here. He is saying to Name, he, what he is saying to John and to us is that my identity, what makes me special, is not about hearing and believing. It's about tasting and seeing. He says, just look. He said, theological arguments are not going to reveal you to me. What is going to make the difference is what you see and what you experience of me. Just look at what happens to the people whose lives I touch and then believe. And over the centuries, millions have come to be followers of Jesus, not because of some clever argument or theology, but because they've had a personal experience of Jesus at work in their lives. And I now want to tell you briefly how I came to my own uh, answer about what makes Jesus special. Um, if you'd asked me in my early 20s, whether all the great religions of the world are the same, I would have said, oh, yeah, basically, yes. I mean, they all, in the sense that they all um, teach love and goodness and forgiveness, and they all point to a higher being 
which we Christians call God. I had traveled very widely. I had visited, uh, I devoted a lot of energy, actually, to studying other religions. And I'd gone to temples and to ashrams and to mosques and to synagogues and to shrines of all kinds and cathedrals and churches. And I'd met people of other faiths and I was very often humbled by how much they loved God as they understood him and how faithfully they obeyed his rules. Much, they were much better in many ways than I was. And I concluded, really, that, that, you know, Christians did not have a monopoly of faith, hope, and love. Well, one day, one fine day, my wife Victoria and I found ourselves in a Life in the Spirit seminar. This is a precursor, a 12-week um, <clears throat> Christian Foundations course that preceded Alpha <clears throat> and the, um, <clears throat> the Christianity Explored courses that we run here at St. John's. Here, for the very first time in my life, I heard the full gospel explained in a way that made sense to me, although I found a lot of the teachings really painful. The first thing I had to come to terms with is what, what distinguishes Christianity from all other faiths is the resurrection. Now, every other faith I learned was founded by someone who um, lived and preached and did good things and died and remained dead. Christianity was founded by someone who lived and preached and did good things and died and rose again from the dead and lives forever in and through his followers. And that caused me a real problem because in those days, if someone had asked me, Supposing someone found Jesus' bones buried in the desert somewhere in the Holy Land and proved conclusively that Jesus had not risen from the dead, would you still be a Christian? And I would have said, yeah, sure, of course, because I mean, I would still have his teachings and I would still have his example to follow. But I was shown now for the first time that that was no longer something that I could believe. It's not an option for Christians to believe in the resurrection. But for years, if I was honest with myself, for years, I'd recited the Apostles' Creed and I'd celebrated Easter without giving much thought at all to whether I actually, actually, truly believed in the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Bible states very clearly that if the resurrection didn't happen, then we Christians are to be pitied because we will have uh, lived a lie and we will have been fallen victims to the greatest con trick in, of all times. So now I realize that I could no longer sit on the fence with regard to the resurrection. And that worried me for a long time. I really struggled with that. And I started casting around for um, books, articles by Christians who had set out to prove the resurrection, as well as non-Christians who had set out to disprove it. And eventually, one of, actually, one of the most helpful books, the most enlightening books I found, was The Case for Christ. Uh, this is written by a, um, an agnostic, or he was an agnostic, investigative, quite eminent uh, journalist called Lee Strobel, and he, who spent years trying to debunk uh, the resurrection, only to find himself becoming a believer. And his book has been made into a film, which we occasionally show here at St. John's.
And although the resurrection, which I eventually had to believe in, no, no options, uh, <clears throat> is the most dramatic thing that, uh, about Jesus, there's so much else that I had to discover and really think about that made him special. First are the Old Testament prophecies, each of which he fulfills perfectly. Then there are the miraculous events surrounding his conception and his birth and his, uh, 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 that we celebrate at Christmas. And then there's the unique um, teaching and the miracles and then the astonishing events that surround his passion, death, and resurrection. At a certain point in my life, <clears throat> I had to come to terms with Jesus' insistence that he was the only way and the only truth and the only life. And one day it dawned on me that I could no longer call myself a Christian if I didn't change from being a 1 Corinthians 13 believer to becoming a John 14, 6 disciple. Let me explain what that means. 1 Corinthians 13 is the famous and very comfortable love chapter that is so often read at weddings and funerals. And, uh, the, and whereas John 14.6 is, is the equally well-known but decidedly uncomfortable um, verse I've just referred to, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to me, comes to, goes, comes to the Father, except through me. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 13 starts. You, you all know it, but I'll just repeat a few of the phrases. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love. I'm only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. And then it goes on to describe love. It says, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does, is not proud, it doesn't, it doesn't boast, it doesn't dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it uh, keeps no record of wrongs, it does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it, it always perseveres. Wonderful. And it concludes with, now, these remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Wonderful words. The trouble is that some people, a lot of us, define Christianity by that, by taking that chapter in isolation of everything else that Paul, the Apostle Paul, has to say about repentance and faith and turning to Christ. And by that definition, if, if you define Christianity, as I, I, I must be honest, I did. If you define Christianity by 1 Corinthians 13, then every single human being who is kind and thoughtful on the planet can call him or herself a Christian. Not so with John 14.6. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth and the life, and anyone who comes, any, no one comes to the Father except through me. This doesn't allow much wriggle room, does it, for trying to work out who Jesus is or whether Christianity is just one of many ways to get to heaven. Once upon a time, as I've already said, I was a 1 Corinthians 13 Christian. I loved my friends and neighbors regardless of their beliefs and I was ignorant of the exclusive claims of Jesus. I went to church because church met my needs, 
and I enjoyed good preaching so long as the preacher didn't make me feel too uncomfortable. But uncomfortable I was, and I remained for years. And I knew that I couldn't just go on like this. I knew that inside me, I was uncomfortable because I, I, I couldn't have put it into words in those days. But I just wanted more of God in my life, and I didn't know how to go about it. I was religious without ever having made a personal commitment to Christ, or for that matter, any major changes in my life that made me any different from the unbelievers all around me. Somewhere along the line, a wise old Christian told me, you know, God has no grandchildren. And what she meant is that we can't just inherit our faith, nor can we, nor will it come to us, can we absorb it through the skin simply by doing a lot of very churchy things. Each of us must work out for him or herself whether becoming a Jesus follower makes more sense than any of the other alternatives. Each of us has to decide whether Jesus matters more to us than any of our other little gods. There was much in my life that needed changing, and I hadn't been able to change in my own strength. And I realized that unless I committed to Jesus, um, nothing would change in my life. And so it, it was only after I made that commitment, it was painful actually, difficult at first, but then strangely liberating, I, um, I then suddenly had the strength to get rid of those sinful and sort of negative and self-destructive things that had governed my life for so long. But then, you know, committing your life to Jesus doesn't mean that you're going to have an easy ride. It is not, it, becoming a Christian doesn't put an end to pain and suffering. In fact, Jesus says so. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but behold, I have overcome the world. And um, so we will still, as long as we live, bear the consequences of sin, our own and the sin of, sins of others. And Jesus never promised those who follow him that, he would, that they would have an easy life. He never said that. He said, what he said is he would be with us as we walk through the, 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 what is it, the valley of the shadow of death. But to me, that means that Jesus isn't just the light at the end of the tunnel. He is my light in the tunnel. And that's really what makes the difference for me. I want to end with a, a short reflection on Jesus' words, the last sentence that was read to us by Topo, where he says, Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. Strange thing to say. And as I thought about it, I realized that what caused more stumbling over Jesus than anything else is his claim that he was God. More than anything else, it makes him special and different, but more than anything else, it makes him divisive. And it caused, during his lifetime, it caused many of those who followed him to fall away, and in the end, it caused his enemies to crucify him. And I believe that we can only come to the realization that Jesus is God. We can say it, but we'll only realize it once 
he is at work in us. We allow him to work within our hearts and our souls and our bodies and our lives and our families. That's when we begin to see the truth of that statement. But we'll only still comprehend just a tiny bit of it. But, you know, someone who had that experience and who, could, who actually wrote about it much better than you and I could was the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the Colossians. And I want to end this message with the Apostle Paul's words to the Colossians because he had that experience and this is how he came to the conclusion. Let's, let's read his words. The Son is the image of the invisible God, <clears throat> the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were, were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, things that have been created, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body. The church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen.